redeemer and sustainer. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Also, out of interest in the Church calendar, the Roman Church at Slatari Sunday, which is set up as a day of joy, and it starts with, in Leila's gene, Rejoice with Jerusalem. Let me play for When I was younger, we would often debate and consider the question, would you rather be blind or would you rather be deaf? And each person or each child would make up their own conclusion based on their own personal reasons. One might say, I'd rather be blind so I can hear music, or I'd rather be deaf so I wouldn't miss out on a beautiful sunset. And I'm sure that if we were posed with the same question this morning, we might also make a strong leaning towards one or the other. And these debates and discussions by our young minds so many years ago never thought of the possibility or the reality of old age that blindness and deafness may be coming in our future. I went to my optometrist last year for an annual checkup, and that was January 2019. And I was given the news that perhaps none of us want to hear that there seems to be some sort of irregularity in my ocular nerve. And they're asking the questions, is there family history of glaucoma? Is there family history of blindness? Something that seems so distant to me 20 years ago in a passing discussion with my friends could be a reality that I never chose. And obviously, fear, apprehension, uncertainty, wondering, and considering the worst was my lot for a duration of about two weeks last year while I waited for the ophthalmologist appointment. On that, I think it was a Wednesday, I got my dad to, to drive me to the ophthalmologist as I was told that I wouldn't be able to see clearly after the appointment for about an hour or so. And so for 45 minutes that afternoon of dilated eyes, eye anesthetic drops that burnt, and weird eye tests that I had to stare at a flashing red star and point out specific things, the news was good for me. The, uh, and the abnormal ocular nerve was not a concern or a cause for concern, and there was no nerve degeneration. I was born with an abnormal ocular nerve. But what about those who go blind or are born blind? Blindness is defined as the inability to see anything, including light. The statistics say that 285 million people are estimated to be visually impaired across the world today. 120 of these could undergo surgery or corrective measures to restore their sight. And unfortunately, 90% of the visually impaired are in the third world condemned effectively to continue blindness. Terrible statistics, sobering statistics. Who would actively choose to be blind? Who would prefer blindness over sight if they were given the opportunity? Psychology has a term for this, and it's called willful blindness. And it's defined as an intricate, pervasive, cognitive, and emotional mechanism by which we choose actively, sometimes consciously, but mostly not, to remain unseen in situations where we could know, 
and should know, but we don't know because it makes us feel better not to know. And so we can consider the saying this morning, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see. Few biblical stories illustrate this fact better than the story which has just been read to us about the man born blind in John 9. Because the Pharisees were set against receiving Jesus as the revelation of God, they repeatedly resisted the plain truth that the man had in fact been born blind and had been healed by Jesus. To accept this truth would force them to change their theology and their man-centered traditions in which they gloried. So they continually pressed the man's parents and the man himself to deny that he had been born blind and that he had been healed by Jesus. But in the midst of all of this, the man stood firm, insisting that a true change had happened to him from the hand of Jesus. The man then is a model for us. When Jesus, or when people press us to deny the claims of Jesus, we are to insist that he is the truth and that he is the Savior. In verse 34 of this morning's Gospel reading, we learn that the Pharisees had been uttering only a superficial denial of the man's blindness and his healing. Out of sheer frustration, after the man repeatedly um, refuses to name Jesus as a charlatan, they declare that he was born in Utterson. The reference here is to his blindness. For like many other Jews of his time, they believe that sin caused his birth defect. Clearly they know that he was born blind and have been trying to get him to insist otherwise, so as not to have their own authority imperiled by Jesus' ministry. They cast the man out of the synagogue. But there is no true loss, but that is no true loss for the man himself. For the man comes to see Jesus for who he truly is, and thereby was saved. We see then an ironic contrast between two groups of people. Some people are born blind and know that they are blind. Jesus is quite willing to open the eyes of these individuals, not merely physically, but spiritually so that they may see and believe. The man born blind represents these individuals. Others, however, think that they can see, not only physically, but spiritually. The Pharisees who are actually blind to the things of God represent the second group of people. Jesus came into the world for judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show how blind are those who trust in themselves only spiritually. This is not at odds with his purpose to bring salvation, but it is secondary and a necessary result. Condemnation attends our, or salvation in general. Those who reject the dazzling light of Jesus, as he is offered in the gospel, are blinded to the things of God by his glory. John Calvin commented, Since Christ is, by his own nature, the light of the world, it is an accidental result that some are made blind by his coming. He goes on to say that God is under no obligation to save anyone, and those who harden themselves against him have no claim on his grace. All of us must take care not to reject the light of Christ, lest we be blinded to his glory 
and cut off from his salvation. Of course, none whom he has saved will finally blind themselves to him, but we <coughs> prove that he has opened our eyes by continually turning to his light and seeking to be guarded by it. So the question is, so what is the light of Christ and how can that light pierce our darkness today, our darkness of spiritual blindness? There are two types of light in the world, and we can perceive one or both, or neither. When we are born into this world, we perceive physical light, and by it we learn of our Creator's handiwork in the things we see. However, although that light is good, there is another light, a light so important that the Son of God had to come in order to both declare and impart it to men. John 8.12 states, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The allegory used by the Lord in this verse speaks of the light of his truth, the light of his word, the light of eternal life. Those who perceive the truth of the true light will never walk in spiritual darkness. We take a candle into a room to dispel the darkness. Likewise, the light of Jesus Christ has to be taken into the darkness of sin that engulfs the hearts and lives of those who are not following him. That's the condition behind having this light that we follow. If we do not follow him, we will not have this light, this truth, and this eternal life. Physical light is necessary for physical life. The earth would certainly change very rapidly if there were no longer any sunlight. A forest full of trees with very thick canopies of foliage high above us has very little plant life on the ground floor except for moss or lichen, which needs very little sunlight. Plants will never move away from the light. They are said to be positively phototropic, drawn to the light. In the same way, spiritual light is necessary for spiritual life, and this can be a good test for our standing in Christ. The believer will always tend towards spiritual things. He will always tend towards fellowship, towards prayer, the Word of God, and so on. The unbeliever does the opposite because light exposes his darkness, and he hates the light. Indeed, no man can come into the true spiritual light of Jesus Christ unless he is enabled. Following Jesus is the condition of two promises of John 8 verse 12. First, his followers will never walk in darkness, which is a reference to the assurance of salvation we enjoy. As followers of the light, we will never follow the ways of sin, never live in a state of continually sin. Rather, we repent of our sin continually in order to stay close to the light of the world. The second promise is that we will reflect the light of life. Just as he came as the light of the world, he commands us to be lights too. In Matthew 5, we see believers depicted as the light of the world. Just as the moon has no light of its own, it reflects the light of the sun. So are believers to reflect the light of Christ, so that all can see it in us. The light is evident to others by the good deeds we do in faith, 
and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The emphasis here is maintaining a credible and obvious witness in the world, a witness that shows us to be faithful, God-honoring, trustworthy, sincere, earnest, and honest in all we do. Also, we should be ready to give an account of the hope that we have. For the gospel light we have is not to be covered, but made obvious for all to see and benefit from, that they too may leave the darkness and come into Christ's glorious light. Let us pray. Gracious God, whose mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our continual wanderings, and deeper than all else, receive us again, your bewildered, your anxious, your scared people at this time. Forgive our folly and our excesses, our coldness to human sorrow, our passion for things of the moment. We pray that you would change our hearts and turn all our desires towards your glorious light, that we may love what you love and do what you demand. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.